Good morning, everybody. This is David. Uh, this morning, I'm here with Dr. Sesana to discuss some um, patient safety and quality improvement measures. Welcome, Dr. Sesana. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Sesana is an associate professor of pediatrics as well as a pediatric hospitalist at Riley. She actually wears an additional hat as the medical director for quality and safety here at Riley. So there's nobody better to talk to us about patient safety and quality improvement than Dr. Sesana. So. We are really excited to be using the Child Life Zone recording studio again. Um, this is my first attempt at the recording here, so we'll see how it sounds, but hopefully you guys will enjoy listening to this. Uh, we just want to give an extra shout out to the Child Life Zone for allowing us to utilize their space. And then go ahead um, and check out at Peds in a Pod on Twitter for some pictures of the recording space. All right, so on to what we're going to talk about today, patient safety and quality improvement. As far as the boards are concerned, it's a smaller portion, about 1.5%, but certainly an important topic for our day-to-day lives, and then also some easy questions you should be able to pick up on the boards. So why don't we go ahead and get started? Sounds great. All right. So first on the list, you want to talk about some definitions? Definitions. Let's do it. All right. This is where I think it's important to have a little bit of um, baseline. So a lot of times people think that an adverse event equals medical error. And that's not entirely true. There's kind of an overlap in there. But an adverse event actually can, um, is any event that happened to a patient that we either didn't intend to happen or wasn't expected. So it could be a complication. And that even though you follow the standard of care and all of the things that you should do in order to treat that patient, you might have an adverse event. So you can think about that as having um, renal failure even after dosing appropriately a particular medication, if you will. Now, if you dosed it appropriately, did all the things you were supposed to, that could be fall into the bucket of a non-preventable adverse event. If you, let's say, wrote for too much, uh, like if it's acyclovir and the child then goes into renal failure, you wrote for too much, they weren't adequately hydrated, Um, and you didn't realize that, and they go into renal failure, then that falls into the bucket of a preventable adverse event. So there's a little bit of like a Venn diagram there when we think about it. A near-miss event is what a lot of people talk about too, and we um, throw this term around a lot, and what you should, um, the way you should define that is that that's where you, there was a medical error that occurred, so you wrote for the wrong dose of medication, but we caught that before it actually got to the patient. So either the pharmacy said, hey David, I think you meant to write for less, and you say, oh yeah, that's right, I did. Or the nurse catches it and says, it seems like it's really too high, and the patient doesn't get it. So if the patient gets it, it's not a near-miss event. I'm very thankful for the pharmacist on a lot of occasions (laughs) for that, because especially with the electronic medical record, I'm entering it as milligrams, but Cerner is thinking it's milligrams per kilogram. Right. So that happens. Right, and it's very easy to do, right? Especially if you're in one room treating a 17-year-old and then another room treating a 17-month-old. So, exactly. Yeah. And then a sentinel event is actually a definition by, um, that the Joint Commission sort of coined, and it's any, any type of patient safety event that re- results in death, permanent harm, or severe temporary harm requiring intervention to sustain, med- or to sustain life. So that's just another term you get here, um, you hear tossed around too. And sentinel events are 
are the, the sort of I think of as the big bad things. So if there's death due to um, the wrong dose of medication, and there's certainly you hear about those in the news. Or um, the other thing is if there's a wrong site surgery or wrong procedure. Those are those types of events too. So, so those are some basic probably definitions to get us started with. So we talked a little bit about some of the causes of adverse events in the pediatrics. I'm sure there's more causes for this, but what are the costs and you know other problems associated for patients and families when these events do occur? That's a great question, and I think that's a really important perspective to have. So probably one of the biggest costs, if you will, is that they're probably going to stay in the hospital longer. And so, um, so I think there's some some direct cost um, in terms of time lost, and I think you have to think about the impact that that has on a family, especially in terms of that may mean mom and dad have to take off more work. That may mean um, a child is missing school, which is really important for them overall. I think there's psychological cost that goes into that about trust and, and everything else in the medical system. And then I, I think there are a lot of other things we miss out on, whether that be a birthday party or something else, because you had to stay here longer with us, because generally that's, it um, increases your length of stay with us in the hospital. So I think what's important to also note are some of the other causes that put the pediatric population of patients um, at greater risk for medical error and adverse events. And some of that has, I mean, well, I would say a lot of that has to do with the fact that we treat patients of all different sizes all the time. And so it's really important for us to always think about weight-based dosing. So whereas in the adult world, it's a lot of times it's the same dose of whatever drug you're using, no matter whether a patient is, you know, 35 versus 55. Whereas if we took that same 20-year age range and we said zero, like a newborn to 20 years old, that's a huge range. The other thing I think that we have to remember is that there are lots of things that have been studied in adults that may not have been studied in kids, and so we have to have um, have to have that realization in terms of um, medications and devices. Another thing I think that is really important in peds to remember is that not all of our patients communicate with us. There's a large majority of babies, obviously, that we take care of and children that can't talk and necessarily tell us what's going on. And so we have to rely on parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and babysitters to tell us what medications they're on and all of those types of things. And then we have children who have medical complexity, significant medical complexity that we take care of in children's hospitals and in outpatient settings um, that have a lot of complex um, medications or diets and those types of things that may not, we may not be able to see that in the, when we think about adults. The other thing is I would say that one of the, the things is that when we look at quality and safety measures for the adult world, those don't always translate into pediatrics. So looking at pneumonia in the adult population is not the same as looking at pneumonia in the pediatric population. And so we can't just always take things from the what we know in the adult world and just plop them into peds and expect that that's going to work. I think thinking about those things and how those play a role in quality and safety are very important and realizing that the systems we design have to be, um, and, and the EMR is a great example, have to fit for pediatrics. I learned pretty early in my training that I can't walk into the six-month-old's room and go, hey, baby, what's wrong with you today? <laughs> That's right. What brings you in today? <laughs> That's they look at you and go, hmm. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> okay, so let's say an error ha- has happened. What should we do next? I think that's, um, 
that's an interesting point of where do we go? So there's two things that you need to do. Number one, you need to take care of the patient. I need you to figure out what you need to do if the error occurred. So that involves the medical care that you're going to have to give. And then the other really important piece of that is how you're going to disclose that to the family. But the first and foremost, I need you to take care of the patient. So if that means we gave too much morphine and you need to reverse it with Narcan, then I want you to do that. And then we'll, we'll um, talk about the other piece that needs to happen, which is how do you let somebody know that it happened? Because that situation, if there was a medical error that occurred, may have happened because there's a system problem. And so what, is the, what were the uh, sort of the factors at play? And that's where my job comes in and our folks in risk management helping understand what factors or what we say sort of causes led to why you made that error. Because what we do know is that it is much more likely that it's a system error, a system, or that there were lots of system causes than just individual causes. And that you being a better doctor or a better provider is not going to necessarily prevent this from happening again. And so I think that the key pieces are first take care of the patient, um, figure out when and how to disclose to the family and then report it. And so whether that be in, an, an, in our system, that's the incident reporting system, um, that's letting the manager and your either attending or um, division chief know that it happened so that we take all those people and those perspectives and then figure out what happened. But don't forget the disclosure piece, and I think the disclosure piece is something people are not always comfortable with. And so there are, in almost every institution, there are people that can help you with how to disclose and what are the right things to say. And, um, and I think one of the best ways to say it is to lay out on the table what happened and what you're going to do now and then document that too. And I think to that point, you know, an error has happened and some people may not know exactly how to disclose that error. So what what kind of barriers do you see for disclosing adverse events or reporting adverse events? So I think for both disclosing and reporting, there's fear. People are afraid. Number one, I'm afraid if I tell the family what happened, they're going to lose trust in me. But in fact, if I tell the family what happened and I'm very open and honest about it, um, what we know from some of the data, it says that actually that helps them trust us more because we're not trying to hide something. In terms of reporting, there's um, we know that there's fear of reporting. Um, there's sometimes time because some, it does take a moment to sit down and fill out you know, an incident report about what happened. And I think those, um, those are barriers for people. And so how do you make it really easy? And, and in my role, it's thinking about how do I make it really easy for you to be able to let the right people know, including myself, that something happened. Because oftentimes, um, people in leadership in, in hospitals and emergency departments and ambulatory settings won't know that these things are going on unless people on the front lines tell us. And it's so critical because the other piece is that you often know how to fix it better than I know how to fix it. So it's, it is equally as important if we want to prevent that from happening again that we find out because what I think people in leadership's responsibility to do is to make sure that it actually happens, that the fix occurs, but we're going to depend on people in the front line, the physicians, the nurses, the pharmacists, the respiratory therapists to tell us how to fix it. 
And I think that that's another interesting point of kind of how this podcast has morphed was initially the thought was for board review, but so many of these things are clinically relevant, so it's nice to be able to tie the two together. Yeah, Yeah, that part may not be on your board. It's really important to know, Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure some of our listeners who are already board certified appreciate the uh, extra clinical content as well. We hope so, right? So there's something on the content outline talking about the national patient safety goals. Can you touch on those a little bit? Yeah, so each year the Joint Commission um, and other organizations get together and talk about and and then publish national patient safety goals. These are are the things that are pretty much bread and butter, and none of us would disagree with them. It's handoff, things like handoff, um, using, making sure that we identify patients properly. One of the the bigger topics that was newer was strategies to reduce alarm fatigue so that when you walk into the ICU and you hear all the the noises going off that you actually you know pay attention to them and don't just they don't just become white noise because we know that alert fatigue and alarm fatigue are a big deal and so there are goals such as those each year they're um, reevaluated and there are goals for hospitals ambulatory setting surgical setting um, surgery center settings those types of areas um, that they release those and then the expectation is that hospitals are working on those and and setting you know institutions are working on those um, because these are the things that patients expect from us they expect when they walk in our doors that we're going to we're going to first keep them safe and so those goals line up with all of that all right very good so what are strategies that we can use to help decrease adverse events? That's a great question. So I, I think one of the biggest things um, we have to work on is culture in medicine and, and in healthcare. And so we know that culture drives behavior, which ultimately drives outcomes. And so we have, if we have a culture where everyone feels comfortable speaking up, so if the, if, um, the housekeeper feels comfortable saying to me, hey, Michelle, I think you forgot to wash your hands, then that helps us, right? That, but, but we still live in a world where we still know that there are places where that culture is not pervasive. And, and so that takes continual work on that because the better we are at all working together, um, the better we'll be ultimately at, at providing safe, error-free care. So it has to start with that because then if we can build a culture where everyone's comfortable, if something does happen and we have to sit down at the table and do a, a what people talk about as a root cause analysis to really dig in and figure out what happened, then everyone will be comfortable speaking up. And that, I know, sounds like utopia, um, but really that's where we have to get to is that we can, um, you know, when we're out rounding on a floor and we have a big team, that the medical student can, can say to the attending, I have a question or I have a concern about this, about what we're about to do. And, I, and so I think that's one of, the culture is one of the biggest things. I think the other thing is we have to design systems that make it easy for you to do the right thing and really hard for you to do the wrong thing. And we know we're not quite there yet. We know that um, we, cannot, we can say that we know the EMR does not always drive us to do the right thing every, or make it easy for us to do the right thing. And I think we have to continually work on that to improve it. Um, but I, I think teamwork and, and culture and designing systems are what um, will help us reduce medical error. I think the other thing, though, about that is you have to constantly be asking the question what and paying attention. So there are principles of high reliability, and one of those is um, 
preoccupation with failure. And so what that means is that every day, every moment, we're looking for signal to tell us that something might be wrong. And so not blowing off some of the small things, not blowing it off when you write for the wrong dose of a medication. So why did you write for the wrong dose of the medication? Was it because what was presented to you when you went to put in the order made you think that this was the way to order it? And there are examples every single day that we see in that. And so how do we help design the system to make it, it um, easier for you to do the right thing? And the other thing we have to constantly do is um, do process improvement, do continuous improvement, whether that be um, to make it easier for our patients to access us, to get through our system, but also to take evidence-based guidelines and practice and put them into practice and have everybody, if, if a patient comes in with asthma, it shouldn't matter if you treat them or I treat them, they should get the same care. What should drive what we call variation in care should be the patient, the patient's condition changing, not whether Dr. Saison or Dr. Rayburn treats, treats them. And I think those are the way, that, those ways help us reduce error. And something that we always see on the boards is root cause analysis, and I feel like it is always the answer to what I need to do if an error has occurred. <laughs> good, okay. So there are tools, and root cause analysis is one of them. Sometimes we talk about something called a parent cause analysis, and really what you're doing is you're trying to find why the error happened. And so if an error does happen, it's going through and really dissecting that error. We don't use root cause analysis for every single error that happens in the hospital, um, but we um, there are certain levels of which we'll do root cause analysis. And it really involves getting each person's perspective that might have been involved um, and understanding what the factors were that contributed to that, whether there were system factors or individual factors. And so um, it's a tool that is, is commonly used and it's a very good tool and it's not just used in medicine too, it's used outside in other industries as well. So it's a framework that we use to, to um, understand why something happened. And I think the one of the keys is that you can never say that the root cause was the person, that individual person. You have to come up with the reasons why. And so um, if something happens, if I make an error, it shouldn't be that the root cause is that we get rid of me as the physician. The root cause is maybe I was tired. Maybe I had um, 12 patients I was seeing and I was in the middle of writing orders for one and someone came and asked me a question about another one. So understanding it from that perspective and really um, using some principles called just culture. So, so thinking about not placing blame on people. It's not about blaming, it's about figuring out what happened um, and why it happened and how do we prevent it from happening again. And I think that's a really important point because when we look at physician burnout, we have to be able to support physicians because something's going to happen to you, whether it be a complication and you did everything right or it's an actual error that you're involved in. And those are hard for people to recover from. And the last thing I want anybody to do is to stop practicing because they were involved in one of those situations. And so I think there's got to be, we have to really pay attention to second victim and supporting people through this. Because not only is the patient, the victim, and the family, the people involved are too often. So are there ways to design systems to help prevent error? There are, and so there's some really cool stuff called human factors engineering that, um, that people use. And so human factors engineering is actually not 
just in healthcare, and and a lot of times you hear it much more outside of healthcare than you do inside of healthcare, um, and it's come on the scene more recently in healthcare as a way to um, to really help you as a as a physician or a nurse or or whatever role you're in in healthcare um, to help understand the environment you work in and and help you better do your work. And so an easy way to think of this is, and so I should I should back up and say the other Dr. Sesana, um, my husband, is an anesthesiologist. And so in anesthesia, they learned about this um, much more, uh, or much longer ago than we did. And so one of the things that you'll notice in anesthesia, if you ever do an anesthesia rotation or an elective, is it doesn't matter who makes the anesthesia machine. You turn it on and off the same way, and you turn the gas on and off the same way. So, and and I can't remember whether it's counterclockwise or clockwise. But anyways, it doesn't matter if if what manufacturer. So it, so which is makes the machine so that that way, the anesthesiologist doesn't have to spend valuable critical thinking time trying to figure out, oh, did I turn the gas up or down based on the type of machine I have. And so, human factors engineering plays is. That's what it is, is that kind of thing. It's also what you think of in terms of why pilots you know, who fly airplanes, how the cockpit is arranged the same way in a particular type of plane. And that's all about human factors. It's a, and it's about you know, how does one view the equipment they're gonna use and how are they gonna use it in a way that makes sense to them. And so we, we try to design we're trying to get better about designing hospitals that way. So one of the things we did in our hospital is we used lean principles to design the hospital. And some of that is about human factors. It's about putting the, the things you need in the space you need them rather than making you walk multiple places so you might get interrupted or you might forget um, that you're supposed to be getting something before you get back to it. So it's very cool stuff and I, um, I probably am going to say more than I understand about it. So I'll stop there, but it's understanding that kind of stuff about how, how products are designed so that they make use or make sense to you to use them, but also so that um, it's safe and it's, it, it does what you expect it to do when you use the product. So it's cool stuff. It's, I had a feeling we weren't going to get through this talk without talking about lean, so I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad it came up. <laughs> you knew we'd get there, right? I did. I did. <laughs> That's right. So since we talked about lean and we were talking about <laughs> QI, yeah. this is definitely something that I think a lot of residents struggle with. And probably anybody that goes to, to uh, take the boards, they're probably not thinking so much about quality improvements. So can we just talk about some of the nuts and bolts of QI? Sure, and- sure. So there's, there are different um, what we call process improvement methodologies, but they're all at fundamentally the same. So one of the model or one of the um, methodologies is called the model for improvement and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement um, has this if you go to their website you can learn much more about what what it is and then what I'll I'll talk about now but the big things is the model for improvement asks three questions what is it we're trying to accomplish so what's your aim what do you want to what is it you want to do how do you know that that change is going to result in, a, in an improvement? So how are you going to measure it? And then what change are we going to, are we going to do to make an improvement? So what's, what's your intervention? Um, and then the next part of that is using what's called the PDSA cycle, Plan, Do, Study, Act. And going through that cycle, what I'll say about quality improvement is one PDSA cycle does not make 
a quality improvement project, you often have to do lots of PDSA cycles. So, for example, we've done a lot of improvement work in our emergency department. You know, the first time we try to implement um, something like we're, we're going to implement the pediatric asthma score, I'm sure we're going to have to change things after the first couple days because we probably, it won't run smoothly. And so that's a real key to quality improvement is that you, um, if you come up with an intervention and it doesn't work right out of the gate, don't get frustrated. You, you just have to keep at it. Now, what I also, the other caveat to that is if you're going to fail, fail fast and move on. If it doesn't work after you've tried to all, you know, change it or make some modifications to it, then move on to the next intervention. Don't keep trying to, to make that fit if it's not going to fit. We're, we're running, we do a lot of improvement work here, and we're doing an improvement um, project around handoff in the NICU to newborn, and I had um, someone say the other day, I feel like it's just a failure because it didn't work. It didn't work like for the first night. And I'm like, right, because we need to go back and change a couple things, and that's okay. You'll change it, and that's part of doing another PDSA cycle. We do, we use lean process improvement, um, like we said earlier, and lean is a, is, is very similar. These are all very similar. Um, Lean's, um, Lean's sort of tool or, or their principles are respect for people and um, removing waste out of a system. And waste is lots of different things, not just um, people and, and money like some people think that's exactly what Lean is. Lean is not at all about that. It's about how do we make a process work um, in the best way possible and respect all the people in the process, whether that, that be uh, us as the healthcare providers or the patients. And so really having that focus and, and getting, um, getting the buy-in and, um, and, and the people in that area or what we call the gimba where the work is done to tell us what they need to do, what we need to do to improve. And so, and that's also the model for improvement too. I think one of the keys in improvement work is to, like we said, set an aim, but don't set an aim that's like, uh, you know, create world peace, because you'll never get there. So what you have to do is set a, use the, what we call the SMART framework. So it's got to be specific, measurable, actionable or achievable, realistic, and time-bound. So you can't tell me that you want to improve the flu vaccine rate in the ED and that be it. I want you to tell me what it is today and what you want to make it, what you want to get it to, and when is it you expect this improvement? Because you've got to set a time. Um, you may not make it, and you may have been a little overly ambitious, but at least then everybody's pointed to that date and that goal, and those are really important parts of um, QI and what I would say. So sometimes as I'm reading through this content outline, I come across things, and I'm like, I have no idea what they're asking me. So, with that being said, psychology of change. <laughs> that would be what you're, you're like, what is that? Okay, so as um, probably all of you listening and us here, you can relate to the fact that if anybody tells you, um, they say, okay, we're going to make this great change, most people's first reaction is, I don't want to change. You know, you... Um, People will often say that they, they love change, but at the heart of it, a lot of times people don't like change because it's scary. And so, and they're afraid of um, what could happen and how is that gonna impact me? Everybody's first question when you talk about change, inherently, internally, even mine, and this is what I do for a living is, uh-oh, how is that gonna affect me? Or what people will call what's in it for me, the we them. 
So what you have to do is um, think about it in terms of um, you have to address sort of the emotional aspect of change. Um, there, there's some great literature on this. There's a book called Switch that talks about something called the elephant, the rider, and the path. And that the elephant, the, their analogy, um, Chip and Dan Heath wrote this book, their analogy is that the rider is all the data and all sort of the rational part of your brain, and the elephant is the emotion. And the rider can never, ever change the elephant, can never guide the elephant, right? Because the rider is like 100 pounds and the elephant is a ton. So what you have to do when you think of change methodology is you have to, you have to always address the emotional piece and then you change by changing the path, and you help the um, elephant move along on a different path. And so change um, psychology is all about how you help people think differently. And so there are, um, there are people that we sort of categorize people into groups. There are early adopters who those are the people that you could go to and say, I want you to implement this tomorrow. And they're like, sign me right up. And then there's the, the on the other end of the bell curve are the, um, what we call the laggards. It's kind of a derogatory term. <laughs> if you ask me who are like, no way, no having it, never going to change. And even if they like may fundamentally agree with it, they're still not going to want to do it. So what you have to do is you have to realize that the early adopters can't really um, ever get the laggards, but you need some people in the middle that will help everybody change. And you also, when you're doing um, quality improvement, have to recognize that you have people in that spectrum. And some people talk about the valley of change being that there's this point at which you are starting any sort of improvement work and it's you're up, you're up at the top. And that the valley is kind of this like, pit, they, um, I'm not, I don't want to call it the pit of despair because I think that makes it sound awful, but that there is a point in improvement work where it's hard and you've got you've to get through that and then get on the upswing and then you're on the other side of the valley and it's good again. You, you made it through, you got this, um, but going through sort of that valley is about how you pull people along. And so some big things are um, you celebrate when things go well, and you do kind of hokey things sometimes to celebrate. You give people, you know, a cake or say, you know, appreciate them for helping you with something new and different. Or snow cones or in a snow giant cones inflatable at a giant bounce house. inflatable bounce house like we did recently <laughs> this week. That's right. Hey, I am, I am not above um, helping with things like that. So you get people excited about it, recognize, get them, um, get them going um, and get them realizing that they've got some traction and that's how you get through sort of that valley and then there are going to be some people who don't want to change and then you just have to decide whether they're going to get on the bus or they're getting on a different bus and that's okay too you just have to realize that but I think um, if you lead quality improvement you have to understand um, change psychology and change management is another term for it, another phrase for it, because otherwise you'll beat your head, your head against the wall and wonder why nobody else is going to come along, why they're not coming along with you. And so part of that is you have to communicate and over-communicate and remember that people respond in different ways. You have to communicate seven different ways, seven different times, some people will say. Um, and so it's okay though. You have to, and people will come along and then if you get some people that may have been that kind of late adopter, get those people to be a voice for it. Make Help them spread the message because if you can get those people to come along, then you really know you've made it. And you have to be patient. 
I think you have to be patient with people, um, and you have to um, realize that people sometimes sometimes change is like grief. And so they go through the stages of grief, just like, uh, and I don't mean to make light of the stages of grief, but it's very, very similar. Like, you'll see people deny, and people, um, people sort of have that response sometimes, like, oh, I can outlast this change, don't you worry. Um, but sometimes those are your best champions. If you can get those folks turned around, then they'll, they'll go, and they're the ones who will spread the message. And so you just have to realize that exists and that, not everybody's going to be as excited about change as you might be. So you need to be resilient in quality you improvement. You do need to be resilient in quality improvement. That's a very good thing, yes. Definitely resilience. You have to have a, a, um, a pretty good backbone. Well, it's a good thing we're talking about pediatrics because the, the kids are pretty They're resilient. They're pretty resilient. This is true. See, it all ties back. It's, I knew we were going to be able to tie it together. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, I know that we are just skimming the surface of patient yeah. safety and quality improvement, but are there any other kind of quick hits off the top of your head that you can think of that we should know? I, I don't think so. I, so I think we covered a lot. And like you said, I think we come covered, kind of skimmed it, but I think we're good for now. And we can certainly do this again if we want to dive a little bit deeper into quality improvement and patient safety. Excellent. Well, we appreciate you sitting down with us today. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. Mm-hmm.